You know, we think about those names that we saw up on that screen as the great giants of the faith. But in their day, they were the foolish things of this world, the lesser things. They were the discarded and the overlooked who God called and they simply said, yes, I will. Made themselves available. And God transformed nations. We're just asking God for a city. It's a small miracle. And what we've learned is that he has this fantastically perfect plan for reaching people with the gospel of Christ. It's you and me. You think there must be some better way than God using you and me because we're imperfect people. But that's exactly what God's plan is. We think of it as foolishness. And the Bible reminds us that's what God chooses. Those things that are foolish to this world, God uses to confound the wise. So we trust God. When Jesus turned to his disciples and says, you, you're the plan, go and make disciples. And it's not an ultra special mission that only a few are called to. It's a calling for all of us. I don't know if you remember a, a passage in 2 Corinthians 4, but before we really jump into what I want to focus on today, I'd like to take you there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul's teaching about the treasure of the gospel and how God chooses simple jars of clay. So I'm going to begin reading, uh, let's see, um, oh, let's read verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Uh, even back then, there were a lot of people that were trying to come up with their own sales pitch for the gospel, building on things that are meant to be very simple truths and trying to make them uh, humanly profound, adding their wisdom to God's wisdom. And Paul says that's, that's not the secret. The secret is to speak the truth plainly and then let people's conscience and the Holy Spirit work. And then he goes on, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure. What, what is the treasure? It's the light of Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ. He says, but this glorious treasure that he's given us, we have it in mere jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Jars of clay. Paul is just simply talking about the basic ordinariness of who we are. You see, the jar of clay was the equivalent to Tupperware. And he's contrasting what treasure is normally found in. A chest, perhaps as beautifully made as the treasure it contained. Instead of that, God chooses to take the most precious treasure ever and put it in Tupperware. Kind of like a fortune in a mattress. A million dollars buried in a paper bag in the backyard. It's the ordinariness of it that is the lesson here. That's God's plan. He has this incredible treasure, this truth about who he is and the glory of Christ. 
And he says, here's my plan. I'm going to put it in you. You living out that ordinary life is how this treasure, this light, is going to be brought and transmitted. We ask why. Well, why would he do that? And Paul explains it. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show (laughs) that this all-surpassing power, the real power to transform lives, which is the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation. He says to show that this all-surpassing power is from God alone and not from us. Why does God use you and me? Because when he does, it has to be his doing it. And he alone gets the glory and the credit for it. See, that's who we're called to be. So it, it kind of begs the question, who in this room can God not use? Not a question of who here will he use? Who here can he use? What are the qualities that are necessary? And that, that's the question we want to ask today. What kind of a person can bring someone to Jesus? We're going to go through the Gospels. And look at people who God used to bring others to Jesus. And we're going to learn their stories. We're going to start in John chapter 1. We actually started our launch Sunday in this very passage when we talked about what the journey was about. We're going to come back at it. We're going to look at two particular characters in this uh, calling. First, Jesus calling his disciples, but others immediately turning around and being used by God to call others. John chapter 1. While you're turning there, I just want to let you know I had uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, knock on my door yesterday. <laughs> Over the years, I've, I've tried very hard to have uh, conversations with them. And I have to admit, yesterday wasn't a good time. I had varnish on my hands. And, but we talked a little bit. And I started thinking about them. I started thinking about the Mormons, who, of course, are famous both for going door to door. And I thought, I wonder how successful that is. So I did some searching. And in 2009, they were still two of the fastest growing churches in the world. And what they're offering is not the precious treasure. But what they have is the passion. They're willing to get out there and do what it takes. Now, before you think this is a sermon about us going door to door, but let me go there just for a minute. Because probably if I mention the idea of going door to door, there are some of you I know in this room who have actually been trained for uh, evangelism and door-to-door evangelism. So uh, with you as an exception, I'm guessing a lot of you have immediately rehearsed all the reasons why you would never do that. First of all, it doesn't work, or people would think we're Jehovah's Witnesses or we're Mormons, or, you know, what would I say? And you probably have rehearsed all the, the, the Christian reasons why you wouldn't put yourself out and go knock on some door and... and make an introduction for Jesus. And I don't want to argue the right or wrong of that. I just want to ask you to look deep under at the hidden intentions behind that argument. Why else is it important for you to convince yourself that that kind of evangelism wouldn't work? See, I think deep under there is a fear, there is a reservation, there is a disbelief that keeps us from really effectively being used by God to bring others to Christ. But listen again. (laughs) You're the plan. (laughs) You're it. So if you're not getting around to it, who else has to do your job? See, What's going to happen if all of us are satisfied to be the exception to what God wants to be the rule? So now I'm going to leave door-to-door evangelism behind. We're just going to really look at the character issues. What does it take to be salt and light 
those jars of clay that bring this precious light to the world around us. So let's read John 1, verse uh, 35. This is just after John the Baptist pronounces Jesus as the one that he had foretold, the one who is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, Jesus replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. That's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. I'm I'm going to call you Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So we have two instant evangelists in this very first calling by Jesus to his disciples. We have uh, Andrew and Philip. And we want to look at their story. I want to draw out, I want to suggest four qualities, four characteristics that are present in the kind of person that can bring someone to Jesus. The first characteristic, number one, is that that person is excited about their relationship with Jesus. They're excited about it. We read this thrill of discovery. If we were to paraphrase what uh, Andrew says in verse 41, we have found the Messiah. What he's really saying culturally to Peter is, I found what I'm looking for, and I think it's what you're looking for too. Everything about the Jewish people was wrapped in the coming of this Messiah. Everything was shaped around it. Their, Their worship experience, their political context the deepest hunger in their life was that the Messiah would come. Their understanding of who he was was a variety of things. But this was it. It was their deepest longing. Andrew found what he believed and we now know was the Christ, the one he'd been looking for. And what's the first thing he thinks of? I've got to tell Peter. <laughs> Why? Because he's excited about what he's found. 
People that just naturally reach out to others with the love of Christ are people that are just really excited about what that life has done for them. Wouldn't you say that's true? There's all sorts of motivators that Christian leaders will try to draw people into sharing, but the reality is it's the excitement of what God has done in you that is the primary motivator it ought to be. So if that is the case, and you are not one that reaches out in the love of Christ, what might be missing in your Christian experience? Is it possible that the, the excitement isn't there? That your Christianity has become so much the norm in your life, it's just something that you do? Could it be that we're more embarrassed than we are excited? You can always tell if somebody loves something because eventually it comes up in a conversation, right? If you're around the table having dinner with somebody, you ask enough questions, you're going to find out what they're most excited about right now because it's top on their list. I'm excited about my kids. Can't wait to tell you if you ask me how good my Eleanor is doing at Gordon College. 3.98 her first semester. I paid the professors, just so you know. I'm excited about my kids. I'm going to talk about them if you give me a chance. I'm excited about this church. When I talk to other people, they say, what are you doing? I can't wait to tell them about what's happening here. What do you talk about? What we're excited about comes out. Second thing that we see as a characteristic is that they're aware of people who don't know Jesus. The first thing it says in verse 41, the very first thing Andrew did was go to find his brother. But this isn't the only place we see Andrew doing this. In John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, Philip and Andrew show up again. Philip is the one that Jesus turns to and says, boy, there's an awful lot of people here, Philip. Why don't we feed them? And Philip's comments are, eight months of salary wouldn't feed all these people. And it was Andrew who found a boy. And what does the boy have? He knows they've got to feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So probably more like 10,000 people. So what does Andrew do? He finds a boy with five loaves and two fish. That's all it is. Others may have already passed by the boy. Say, well, that's not going to cover it. I mean, that'll barely feed him. Andrew sees it and says, all this needs is to be put in the hands of Jesus. So he brings the boy to Christ. Interesting. What an act of faith that was to be the one that says, well, we've got five loaves, two fish, and a boy. Because he didn't just bring the food. He brought the boy to Jesus. We also see him in John chapter 12. This is after the triumphal entry. Palm Sunday, we're going to celebrate in a few weeks. And it says in John chapter 12 that there are a group of Gentile. Uh, the proper term for Gentiles who were worshiping Jehovah were God-fearers. They were never really called Jewish people, but they were allowed to follow and worship Jehovah. And there were a group of Gentiles who had come to the city for Passover week, and they asked to see Jesus. And they first go to Philip. And Philip says, well, I don't know what to do. And he says, Andrew, I've got these Gentiles that want to see Jesus. Now, for us, because most of us are Gentiles, we're well past the issue here. So we might miss the significance of the conflict that Philip is experiencing. 
If there was ever an ultimate Jew, wouldn't you think it is the Messiah? And so here are these Gentiles who are coming, and Philip frankly doesn't know what to do. Now, this is interesting. The Jewish law requires rabbis to try to talk Gentiles out of conversion. When a Gentile came, the the rabbi's role was to do everything they could to convince them not to convert. And there's a bit of arrogance in that, trying to keep it pure, a bit of a bigotry, I think, probably for some. But also this idea that we are the chosen people. If somebody's going to try to come in and become one of us, we're going to make it as hard as possible. So you have these Gentiles that come and they say, we, want to, we would see Jesus, was their expression. I think Philip may have been caught up with that. What do I do with these Gentiles? So he goes to Andrew. And what does Andrew do? Andrew brings him to Jesus. He's got no problem with that. He sees and he keeps in mind people who frankly just need Jesus. He's in tune to that. That leads us to the third thing, and that is that a person that God uses to bring people to Jesus is willing to personally, personally bring them together. They go out of their way to do that. In other words, their excitement translates into a compassion for others, which translates into a willingness to be inconvenienced and be the one that actually brings that person into an encounter with Christ. Nothing here yet that's rocket science. I was thinking about what the hang-ups might be for us and why we don't ever get around to these things. When I was thinking about the first characteristic, instead of being excited, I think many of us wrestle with embarrassment instead of excitement, Uh, instead of uh, being aware of people who don't know Jesus and having a concern for them. I think one hang-up is that we have just bought this secular notion that a person's faith is their own private business. What's what's that common phrase that we hear? That's between you and your God. Your God. Interesting. I want to be private about my faith. I'm going to respect your privacy. That's just another way to excuse ourselves for not having compassion and concern. The third characteristic, they're willing to personally get involved. I think that's really where the, the highest risk is. The, the step that says, I'm going to open my mouth, I'm going to make an invitation, I'm going to put it on the line and see if there's a yes or a no in terms of people coming to church or coming to a setting where they, they get to encounter Jesus... That's the high-risk moment, the potential of a lost friendship, of being thought of as less by someone because we're a Jesus follower, the risk factor there. Or maybe it's just simply the inconvenience, that if we actually take that step and move people somehow into an encounter with Jesus, that's going to cost more of my time and my effort, not just in that moment, but what if it goes all right? Now I'm obligated to follow up. It's a big commitment. Am I willing to make that? The person that God uses just gets it. They say, yeah, of course, I'm willing to take that risk. I'm willing to take that step. And the fourth characteristic here, and I think this is an important one because this is the step that ought to liberate any of us to be willing to be used of God. And that is that having done the deed of putting people in the presence of Jesus, they leave the outcome to God. You see, I think 
the final hang-up, if we're talking about four characteristics of, of being used by God, I think the fourth general hang-up is this idea that we're responsible for the outcome. How am I going to make this happen? I, I can't convince people. I, I'm going to be a failure because I've done this and it doesn't work. That somehow we are responsible for what happens. And that's not the case. What happens in John 1? Andrew brings Simon to Jesus. Does Andrew do anything after that moment, or does Jesus do it all? Jesus does it all. And we have to believe that that's what's possible when we bring people into a setting where they just get to encounter Christ. Christ is magnificent. He's the light. He's the precious treasure that Paul talked about. Do we trust that when Christ is elevated, that he draws men and women to himself? That what they see is something that catches them and causes them to follow. See, Christ is that glorious and magnificent. We can trust that when he's put forward, he'll draw men and women to himself. It's exactly what he does here. Look, and he does it for Peter, who is, who is hungry, passionate Peter. He's hungry for this. And he also does it for Nathaniel. Nathaniel is the skeptic. Philip goes and brings Nathaniel to Jesus. And what's Nathaniel's first response? He says, Nazareth. That's like being a Red Sox fan and having them bring their all-star from New York City. New York. Can anything good come out of New York? Nazareth. It's like uh, Cleveland. Yeah, Nathaniel was the skeptic. And what did Philip do? Did Philip sit down and say, well, I know you're having a problem believing. I have four logical arguments to present to you as to why Jesus is God. No, I didn't. He said, come and see. That's all I did. And Nathaniel came and Jesus was glorious. And it was his encounter with Christ that made Nathaniel go, now I get it. You are the Christ. I've experienced it. I've seen it. It's bringing people into a place where Christ is present and preeminent and then leaving it to him. See, frees us from the obligation of closing the deal. That's God's job. Our job is to be willing vessels, to understand that the same excitement that ought to be ours for Christ ought to drive us to have others be a part of it. There's a constant awareness of the need of people around you for that message, for Jesus Christ. And then there's a willingness to be the one that just simply says, come and see, come and see. What it tells us is that evangelism is not a one-on-one job. It's a community experience. We're all in this together. Christ's presence is far more profound in the community of faith And then finally, we're willing to trust that when people encounter the living Christ in us, through the Word, in our worship, in our lives, that Christ draws men to Himself. What I'm trying to do is alleviate us from some sense that we feel like, I'm not ready for this. I can't do it. I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. One of the names on our video that we started with was Moses. Do you remember the call of Moses? Seven times he tried to talk God out of using him. Seven excuses. You read that this week, and you'll find every possible excuse you can come up with for God not to use you. I'm trying to free you up from that and, and let you realize you are God's great plan. You, you precious little jar of clay, you. 
And God wants to use that ordinariness because that's when it's miraculous, when God uses ordinary people. See, otherwise, we're attracting people to us, not to him. One of the great dangers of the church are all-star, superstar pastors, superstar musicians, superstar Christian people. Christ alone. We glory, we boast only in the cross. That way, it is purely by the power of God alone. Come and see. See, our pot, God's power. Come and see. Amen.